0: There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Alkanah the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tahu, son of Zuth, and Ephratith. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb... And no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a troubled in spirit. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best for you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word." So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is sent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of the Lord. I
1: think we should uh, open with a word of prayer, so won't you pray with me. Father, as always, our greatest good is an encounter with you, is to meet with you, commune with you. And so we pray that you would... Empower that this morning uh, by your Holy Spirit and through the Lord Jesus who has won our access. Father, meet with us, we pray. Arrest us, confront us, wake us from our slumber, and draw us to yourself with your cords of love. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the first thing we need to do at the start of any new series is to figure out exactly where we are. Uh, Where are we in the Bible and in the history that the Bible presents to us? Where is 1 Samuel? Let's just retrace our steps. So we go back all the way back to Genesis. And in Genesis, God creates the world and he anoints Adam as the royal priest, his royal priest, over the temple garden. Adam is supposed to protect it and serve it, but he fails. He's supposed to drive out the serpent, the serpent. But instead, he lets the serpent in, and he himself is driven out. He loses access to God, and he enters into life under the curse east of Eden. God responds with blessing. He promises Abraham to roll back the curse and to bless the world through him. And the rest of Genesis is the story of that promise and the patriarchs. The book ends in Egypt with the promise to the patriarchs only partially fulfilled because the people have enslaved themselves to sin. That's Genesis. In Exodus, God raises up Moses to lead his people out of slavery and into the promised land, another temple garden. Leviticus details all the arrangements uh, required for God to go with them, to be with them. For a holy God to be and live in the midst of a sinful people. Numbers then details all the ways in which this sinful people reject and offend their holy God. And so they die in the wilderness. When we arrive in Deuteronomy on the borders of the promised land. Moses has to give the law a second time to a new generation of God's people. In Joshua they enter into the promised land and they conquer it. But in the opening chapters of Judges, we discover that they weren't fully obedient in conquering the land. They allowed foreign cultures to encroach into the temple garden. They compromised with sin and idolatry at the fringes. And so what follows in in Judges is really no surprise. 200 years of a downward spiral into sinful chaos. Moses and Joshua are dead and gone. There is no royal priest to guard the garden. And so sin runs rampant. The book ends on this ominous note. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. In the absence of godly leadership, the nation descends into anarchy. What's the solution? At the end of Ruth, we get a little clue, this little clue. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. That brings us roughly a thousand years before Christ to 1 Samuel 1. Israel had no king. Everyone did whatever they wanted. What are you expecting next? You might be expecting our hero to ride into town on a white stallion. It's not quite what we get. 1 Samuel 1 from verse 1. Read there with me. And kudos to David. Man, you drew the short straw with these names. Tian was telling me the life group's actually been praying for him all week. So you guys can pray for me now. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tahu, the son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. If you don't know who Elkanah is, well, you're in very good company. The average Israelite wouldn't have had a clue. He's a certain man who comes from a one-horse town in the hill country of nowhere from a long line of nobodies. The only name you might recognize, if you did some research, was Ephrathite. That just means he had family connections to the town of Bethlehem. Other than that, he is completely obscure. What if I told you there's a national crisis? Our nation is leaderless, and we are spiraling towards anarchy, And then the next thing I said was, but there's a certain man from King Williamstown in the heartland of the Eastern Cape whose name is Elvis, the son of Temba, the son of Bandile, the son of Nomlanga, the son of Uuka, with family connections to Bishu. Well, you might be forgiven for thinking, who's that? And why are you telling us about him? I think that's the point. Obscurity is the point. Nobody from nowhere, humanly speaking, is exactly the point. This nobody had a wife. When she couldn't conceive, he took another. The second wife could conceive and she bore him some children. I think we know where this is going. Whatever his weaknesses in family diplomacy, Elkanah was faithfully devoted to the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the God of Angel armies, we've just sung about it providentially. That's what the Lord of hosts means. It's a military designation. He went up year after year to sacrifice at Shiloh. Shiloh was the place of the tabernacle, the place of God's presence. Year after year, the family would feast and Elkanah would try and compensate for Hannah's affliction by giving her the choice parts of the sacrifice. Now, gents, I think at this point we can recognize his mistake. His mistake. When you are dealing with a deeply upset woman, giving her red meat is a questionable strategy at best, I would say. I'm sorry, sweetheart, but I've got this biltong for you. (laughs) And here, have some season tickets. They're on the halfway line. You're going to love them. Verse 5 says, Elkanah was acting from love. Whatever his motives, his favoritism to Hannah probably only made things worse. Probably only stirred up the rivalry that was already there. And we see it playing out in verse 6. You can imagine Penina, his second wife, you can imagine her saying, We're at the Thanksgiving feast, Hannah. Just remind me what you're thankful for. Oh, yes, the Lord may have closed your womb, but you still get the best cuts of meat. Can you imagine the shame? Remember, this is a pre-industrial revolution, pre-feminism culture where a woman's role and purpose and identity was very tightly bound up with childbearing. Can you imagine the shame? This thing went on year after year, verse 7 tells us. Year after year, a festival to celebrate your barren womb. Year after year, an opportunity for your rival to rub your nose in it. Year after year, your dear husband who loves you, making it worse with empty consolations. Year after year, you can't even eat, and you can barely hold back the tears. Can you imagine how Hannah dreaded that annual family holiday to Shiloh? I know that some of you can. I know that some of you don't have to imagine. What we have in this story is a nobody from nowhere with very everybody, ordinary domestic problems. We read on. Verse 9. One year, Hannah can take it no more. She stands. Everybody else is sitting at the feast. Eli the priest is sitting on his throne Only Hannah stands. Only Hannah is taking action. What is this action? What is this final desperate act of defiance? She prays. She prays. It's all she does. But if we read the rest of the Bible, what we find is that this particular prayer, this prayer of of this desperate barren woman married to a nobody ruling over a divided house, This one prayer changes the history of the entire world. I want that kind of power, don't you? So what's the formula? What kind of prayer does it take? What kind of faith does it take? First, we're going to look at the posture of her faith, and then we'll look at the logic of her faith. We see the posture of her faith... So very easily in the way that she approaches God and the title that she uses to address him. You can see in verse 10, she holds nothing back. She is literally bitter in soul. And in verse 15, she tells Eli that she has poured out her soul before the Lord. All that frustration and anxiety and angst and pain and anger, she holds nothing back. She doesn't try and conceal her bitterness of soul from the Lord. But she also doesn't transfer that bitterness onto the Lord either. Look at how she addresses him in verse 11 with such reverence. O Lord of heaven's armies, she knows this is the God of power. It's nothing for him to speak the entire universe into creation, into being. And she knows her place in that creation. In the same verse, she presents herself as his suffering servant, Her posture before him is one of complete humility. Humility, but confidence. She knew that he had closed her womb. She also knew that he had the power to open it. What would that knowledge do to you? What does it mean to you that God has the power to remove your suffering, but he doesn't? That problem tends, tends to make a lot of us in, either into passive fatalists or into aggressive agnostics. Either God is going to do whatever he's going to do, so why should I even bother praying? Or if there is a God, if he allows this kind of suffering, I want nothing to do with him. That's how we often respond. But not Hannah. Not Hannah. How does she avoid ending up where we end up? Why does she still bring her suffering to this God in prayer? He is the one who closed her womb. This is the thing. She doesn't just trust in God's power. She also trusts in his love. We ask again, how can she? The Lord is the one who closed her womb. Verse 11, O Lord of hosts, O Lord of heaven's armies, O God of power, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, and so it goes. Those words, especially the appeal for God to look upon the affliction of your servant, those words come straight out of Exodus. Remember, in Exodus, Israel was in Severe bondage of the worst kind. They cried out to God and God heard them with deep compassion. He answers in Exodus 3, 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And then in faithfulness to his promise to Abraham and in an incredible display of power, he rescued them from Egypt. What was Hannah trusting in? She wasn't trusting in some prayer formula. She wasn't trusting, She wasn't even trusting in her own vow or her ability to negotiate with God. My future righteousness for your favor now. No, ultimately, she was trusting in his character. She was trusting in the power and love he had demonstrated time and time and time again in the life of Israel. Her faith wasn't a leap in the dark. It was based on the long history of a God who is always faithful to keep his promises and to bring about his good purposes. Now have a look at verse 18 with me. After praying to the God who is powerful and loving, Hannah goes away restored. She's a new woman. She is still without child at this point. That hasn't changed, but that reality no longer devastates her. It seems that everything she wanted from a baby, purpose, value, meaning, identity, wholeness, she got from this encounter with the Lord himself. The Lord was enough for her. He was enough. But the Lord didn't stop there. He added blessing upon blessing. After the feast, the family goes home to their hometown. And in verse 19, Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. What did Hannah do to deserve this baby? Nothing. Nothing. It wasn't her suffering that qualified her? It wasn't her vow? She simply trusted in the power and love of God. She simply asked, "That's why her name is grace. It means grace. Grace is unmerited favor from the Lord. And that's what Hannah means, because that's what Hannah got: Unmerited favor from the lord the lord remembered her and in due course she then remembered the lord verses 21 to 28 shows how at first she delayed dedicating samuel at the temple until he was weaned now weaning in the ancient world is a 2 to 3 year process so it's a significant delay and it raises her husband's eyebrow but he will go along with her plan only verse 23 may the lord establish his word It's kind of a strange thing to say when you think about it. May the Lord establish his word. Shouldn't it read, do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him, only may you establish your word. In other words, okay Hannah, wait until he's weaned, just make sure you keep your promise. But it doesn't say that. It says what it says. May the Lord establish his word. So what we have here, once again, is Elkanah proving himself to be a faithful Israelite. He understands that the Lord has good purposes. And that those purposes are always for our good. Elkanah basically says, fine Hannah, just make sure you don't get in the way. Let God's kingdom come. Let his will be done. May the Lord establish his word. We'll come back to that in a moment. Samuel comes of age. Hannah takes him up to Shiloh to offer the Lord this extravagant thank offering. Three year old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. It's way, way, way beyond what the law required. And of course, the bull, the flour, the wine, those are just the accessories. The heart of her thank offering was Samuel himself. And the story ends with Samuel worshiping God. In Shiloh. It's a fitting ending. It's fitting. How so? Well, because this story is ultimately not about how to get a baby if you can't have one, or about how to be a faithful husband, or how to be successful in prayer. It's about none of those things ultimately. In the end, it's really about God and His purposes. What do I mean? In our story, God Almighty, the God of heaven's armies, the God of power, loves and cares for Hannah. That is certainly true. But the truth doesn't stop there. It runs further. Because through Hannah and through this boy Samuel, God is loving and caring for Israel. And through Israel, God is loving and caring for the whole world. God is loving and caring for you and me sitting here this morning. How can I say that? How do we connect those events? Well, in the story, through the, the tearful prayers of a barren woman, God sets in motion a chain of events that will climax only a thousand years later. Hannah's prayer brings Samuel. Samuel ushers in David. And a thousand years later, another miracle baby was born in David's line in the town of Bethlehem to a pair of nobodies to achieve the purposes of God and anoint a royal priest who will save his people from their suffering and their sin. The one true royal priest who will defeat the serpent in the garden, who will go out to the temple and offer himself as the perfect sacrifice. This is Jesus, the embodiment of God's power. Jesus, the embodiment of God's love. Nothing says power like saving the whole world through a crucified carpenter. And nothing says love like dying for a world that hates you. God is the faithful father. And Jesus is what Adam and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Eli and Israel could never, ever be. What you and I could never, ever be. A faithful son. Do you see why worship is the right place for this story to end? Well, to close it off and land this story in our own stories, let's think about two very simple things. Simple but profound why we worship God and how we worship God just those two things why do we worship God as the song says we often sing it there are 10,000 reasons but here are three straight from our text first God answered Hannah's prayer that's extraordinary in itself when you think about it I mean why should he Martin has told the story, um, many of you will be familiar with it, of when he was still a minister in Soweto in the late 80s. At his typical agenda for the day, he would he would preach twice in the morning, two different congregations. So he finished preaching at his first congregation, and he was heading off towards the next one. He went out to the car, and as he approached the vehicle, four men approached him, uh, and one of them had a gun. The man raised the pistol, and it was basically point blank, just a few meters separating them. He fired off something like 10 shots. Not a single bullet hit its mark, not one. And Martin did what any sane human being would do at that point. He threw the keys at the men and ran in the opposite direction, uh, faster than usual, no doubt. When the community, of course, when the community heard this noise, they ran out, they chased away the men. And then once the dust had settled and Martin had found his keys, he got in his car and went and preached another sermon. It's an extraordinary story, but it doesn't actually end there. Because later that night he um, phoned his mother for their usual Sunday night catch-up. Just some backstory: uh, his mother had had a uh, stroke four years prior, so she was she was very debilitated, uh, very limited in what she could do anyway. Uh, he phoned her up and her first words were, Martin, what's wrong? He tried to avoid the conversation, but she pressed and so he shared the story. And she asked him, what, what time was that? And he said it was 11 o'clock. And she said, I knew it. At 11 o'clock this morning, I had an overwhelming sense that I must pray for you. So I went upstairs and I pray that God would have his hand upon you and that he would protect you. God answered her prayer, the prayer of a stroke-afflicted little old lady who in the eyes of the world was good for nothing, just like he answered the prayer of a desperate woman on the margins of society because she couldn't have a baby. God answered their prayers. Why? Why? Why should he answer their prayers? Well, here's, I'm sure there are many answers. Here's one from the Bible. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God hears the prayers of people on the margins as an act of mercy to humble us. And he humbles us to rescue us from our pride. And he rescues us because he loves us. And he loves us because he loves us. That has everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. And so he gets the glory. And that's why we worship him. Second reason to worship God. Not only did God answer Hannah's prayer, but he used Hannah's prayer to achieve his purposes. Now I'm sure that there are many, many reasons why the Lord chose to spare Martin on that day. And one of them was certainly to encourage a little old lady that she could still be used of the Lord. But another was surely to protect this church, which hadn't even been born yet. We have to be very careful when we try and read God's providence, but I don't think it's a wild and reckless guess to say that one reason God used the prayers of that little old lady to preserve Martin was to preserve his purposes for this church. In the same way that he used Hannah's prayer to give life to Samuel, who would usher in the Davidic kingdom to preserve his purposes for a Messiah who would sit on the Davidic throne a thousand years after that prayer was prayed. God always answers our prayers according to his purposes. His purposes, not ours. Why? Well, because his purposes are infinitely better. Which explains why sometimes the answer will be no. Sometimes the suffering will continue. And if it must, we can rest in the knowledge that God's purposes are always good even if we don't understand them right now. And that leads us into our third reason to worship God. You know, people often raise this objection to trusting in the God of the Bible. They'll say, if God is powerful and loving, as you Christians keep telling us, if he's both powerful and loving, well then why doesn't he stop suffering? Either he wants to, and he can't, in which case he's not powerful, or he can but he doesn't want to, in which case he's not loving. Now, this argument is fairly commonplace. I heard Eusebius Macaiza trotting it out uh, just a while ago. On the surface of it, it seems to be watertight. seems like we can't escape that kind of logic. But this story, the story of nobody's from nowhere in 1 Samuel 1 and the prayer of a desperate, marginalized woman, obliterates that narrative, and it exposes that false logic. The love that God shows to Hannah and the power he exercises in her favor, we know this, it climaxes in Jesus Christ. The death of Christ proves the love of God beyond all doubt. The resurrection of Christ proves the power of God beyond all doubt. The death of Christ proves the love of God. The resurrection of Christ proves the power of God. And Jesus' resurrection is a deposit guaranteeing our resurrection. God has promised to raise us us up. And because Jesus rose, we know that God is both willing and able to keep that promise. The God who loved us enough to enter into our pain has also overcome it. So that we can be sure that one day, one day there will be no more tears. Because that is what he's promised. And he always keeps his promises. For now, we can say with Paul, I consider that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Or with Peter, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore you, strengthen you, secure you, and establish you. God is both willing and able to turn the evil of our suffering into good for his glorious purposes. And the cross of Christ proves it beyond all doubt. So we worship him. God hears our prayers. He uses our prayers for his good purposes. He even turns evil and suffering to our good. And that's why we worship him. But how do we do it? How do we worship him? I think this story paints a picture for us. Samuel is dedicated as a Nazarite. That basically means his whole life is given as a thank offering to the Lord. It brings, in mind, uh, brings to mind a passage from Romans. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. How do we worship? What is true and proper worship? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Samuel was a living sacrifice. He was offered in view of God's mercy as a living sacrifice. The bull was slaughtered. The bull was a dead sacrifice. But Samuel, instead of pouring out Samuel's blood, Samuel would pour out his entire life as a thank offering to the Lord. How are we ever going to do that? How did Hannah do it? Just think through this with me. Hannah had been barren. She had known the pain, the gut-wrenching, relentless, joyless ache of being without child for year after year after year. And we get the feeling that this was the deepest anguish, the deepest torment of her entire life. But then, God gave her a baby. What on earth could possibly motivate her to give that baby away? How could she ever even contemplate it? Mother's in the room. Do you see the impossible situation she was in? What moved her to do it? Was it the vow? Was she locked into this verbal contract with God and now she couldn't get out of it? Was it some sort of stoic sense of duty that compelled her to go through with it? I mean, I don't think that's possible. Duty isn't enough to make the average mother under normal circumstances give up their child. Never mind Hannah. And even Hannah hesitated. She wrestled with this thing for two to three years. Keeping your word isn't going to be enough. The bond of love with your child is too strong. I don't think that's what motivated Hannah. And the reason my opinion counts for anything, I think, is to be found in the first two lines of chapter 2. Have a look there if you have a Bible open with you. Chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah prays again. This time her prayer begins with, My heart exalts in the Lord. You remember Hannah's heart was full of bitterness? She poured out that bitterness. She poured out her heart to the Lord. All that anxiety, that angst, that, that anger, that frustration, that vexation. All of it, she poured it out to the Lord. Now this prayer in chapter 2, by the time we arrive at this prayer, her heart is full of joy. The joy has replaced the bitterness. Hannah isn't acting out of a sense of duty. She isn't trapped by some legal obligation. She has tasted the love of God and it has so filled her that she could freely give away the one thing she couldn't live without. She gives it away freely. The only way she could ever overcome the bond of love for her son was feeling the pull of a stronger bond. God's love for her was so strong that she could give Samuel away. She did it in view of God's mercy. God's loving mercy was her motivation to worship with a living sacrifice a living sacrifice so what's our motivation why do we do the things we do especially the Christian things why are we here this morning can I say that if your motivation is fear or guilt or brute obligation or cold hard duty whatever it is we're doing here it's not worship the Bible tells us you can give all you possess to the poor. You can surrender your body to the flames. But if your motivation is fear or guilt or pride, that is not worship. It's not worship. To worship is to value God above all else so that he's your greatest treasure. It's to exalt in him. It's to be satisfied in him. It's to love him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is to worship God you see that that's not some sort of contractual obligation? We think of Hannah. She saw something of God's loving mercy and it changed her from the inside out. But we, we can see so much more than Hannah saw. Because remember, God didn't just give Hannah a son. He gave us a son, his one and only beloved son. That is the depths of God's love for obscure nobodies like us. That's what will motivate us to give our whole lives in worship. When the love of God in Christ fills your heart like it filled Hannah's, then you can begin to see that he gave everything. He gave everything for you. And you will want to give everything for him. It'll be God's love for you in Christ Jesus that compels you. Above all else. True worship is all of life. And if your motive is God's love, You won't want to give anything less. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful to you, as Michelle prayed earlier, for your character, for who you are. We thank you that you are the God of power and also the God of love. We thank you for Jesus, who is your power and your love in the flesh We thank you that you hear our prayers and that you use them to bring about your good purposes. Father, we want to respond to your wonderful goodness. Please take all of us, take all that we are, all that we do as living sacrifices. Let your merciful love in Christ move us to total devotion. We pray these things for your glory and we know that your glory is our greatest good. Amen.